and welcome to Unpacking the Case, a podcast by David Jones Bold, the real estate law specialists. I am your host, Lizzie Collin, and today I am joined by our head of legal training, Richard Snape. Hello, Richard. Hello, Lizzie. Thank you very much for joining me. We're just recording today off the back of your um, recent webinar on the 26th of May. This was a local authority webinar that you did on disposal of development land, um, in particular featuring restrictive covenants. Mm-hmm. So I think today we're just going to delve into five or six of the cases that you kind of glossed over in that session. So we're going to start with looking at charitable trusts and the case of 2002 Attorney General and Bath and Northeast Somerset Council. So can you just explain, first of all, the background of the recreation ground in Bath? Yeah, I mean, it's an incredibly complicated case, and uh, I don't want to go into a huge detail in charitable law, because uh, well, most people listening will not uh, deal with it uh, in great detail. It's a question of spotting. I'll tell you the background facts. I mean, uh, as I mentioned in the in the uh, in the webinar, I uh, know the area well because I used to live there. It's, it used to be part of the Bathwick Estate. Which uh, was, uh, was, if you want a history of it, kind of a bit of history. Then it uh, all developed when Bath developed southwards. When Pulteney Bridge was built in 1774, in the area uh, to the south, large part of South Bath is actually within the Bathwick Estate, which is where the recreation ground is. But back in 1922, and we'll come back to that when we get onto restrictive covenants, uh, the land was. Uh, sold off in this particular part about 15 acres so a tidy amount of land was sold off uh with covenants that uh to switch to you know not to you know, the council quite yet but with covenants not to uh or to use as open space and uh and to use as a recreation ground and basically not to build on the land back in 1956 they, they did uh, sort of allowed some building work um you know two sides to a a football ground, which also had rugby there as well, primarily rugby ground. I should also mention there were also covenants that you shouldn't favour one type of sporting activity over another. But in 1956, the then owners of the land found that they just couldn't uh, afford to maintain the wreck. And so that's when they transferred to Bath and North East Somerset's predecessors, Bath City Council. And it was transferred on trust, you know, for the benefits, you know, to be so open land and for the purpose of recreation for the public at large, but specifically the uh, the locals of the Bath area. Council, back in 1995, there's already been leases there, but I renewed a lease uh, to Bath Rugby Club, a long lease for 75 years. And in the interim, they'd also, back in the 70s, I think, they'd uh, allowed the building, they'd built a, a leisure centre, like a typical 70s leisure centre, and a car parking area. They then, uh, in the year 2000, the rugby club sort of wanted to expand their stadium because it's quite a small stadium. And that's when the problems started to arise because the, uh, the residents nearby started to do anything they could to um, you know, stop this development. And the first point was uh, the council wanted a declaration as to whether it was held on charitable trust or not, because if it's held on tra- charitable trust for a specific purpose, uh, a designated purpose, you're supposed to get the charity commissioner's uh, consent uh, before you lease out the land and you shouldn't be building on the land if it's in breach of that purpose and the likes. So that was some of the background to it. So what did the court decide then? The court decided that it was held on charitable trust 
I've got great sympathy with the council for, for not knowing that initially, because unless you, I would advise not to read the law report unless you can't sleep at night, because it's page after page, and frankly, it could go one way or the other. They were trying to argue with the uh, council that it's just held for statutory purposes, or there's something called the Physical Training and Recreation Act in 1937. It's there for the purpose of providing physical training for, for the people. Uh, there have been previous cases involving Richmond on Thames and also Liverpool City Council involving recreation grounds where um, they held that it wasn't uh, a charitable trust. Uh, and the Liverpool one, as I recollect, it was on the rather flimsy ground that uh, when they acquired this site in the early 1990s, they paid stamp duty, which you don't have to if it's for charitable purposes. But for whatever reason, the High Court decided that uh, it was uh, a charity um, it has to be for the public benefit and not a specific benefit, you know, a specific section of the public. But they decided because it said it was for the benefit of, of the public at large, that was a public benefit and it's a charitable trust. And Batten, North East Somerset and their predecessor have been in breach of that. That's the background. So what happened next? What was the consequence of that decision? I think if you could bring in the, um, the Badley and Sparrow case of 2015 as well and how that relates. Well, what then happened is uh, the Charity Commission uh, got involved in it. They can uh, create a scheme to deal with this. Uh, and the council were in breach of their sort of charitable trust duties and fiduciaries in relation to this. But the scheme basically allowed things to go ahead with a few modifications and uh, the residents went also to, to set up a new uh, trust of the recreation ground which would have uh, Bath and North East Somerset members uh, as members of the trust, but uh, not solely, and Bath and North East Somerset wouldn't be directly involved in this. The residents uh, objected to that and went to the first tier tribunal. The first tier tribunal wanted the lease of the, uh, the, uh, the rec, uh, the, the rugby club, uh, changed, but didn't really deal with that in too much detail. They didn't think it was uh, feasible to knock down the leisure centre and you know, knock down the car park, but uh, it's got limited life expectancy. Um, tempted to say it sticks out like a sore thumb, but uh, you know, the idea would have been that just you don't renew it uh, at a later stage. That was then appealed to the upper tribunal, uh, still goes on to the upper tribunal in 2015. And the upper tribunal basically said, um, again, it's a sort of quite frankly, a policy decision. The scheme that the Charity Commission should have you know, wanted to impose was fine. Uh, they said that there probably wasn't a breach of the trust. I, I really don't understand the argument here because the wording initially is that the land had to be used as open space uh, and for the purpose of recreation for the public. And they said that the only purpose was the purpose of recreation and open space wasn't a purpose. And so there was no breach by allowing building anyway. That was the next stage. OK, are there any further developments? Yeah, the latest is from late last year. Um, we're going to, I'll mention it when we get onto restrictive covenants shortly. Um, but there was then a case called Bath Rugby Club and uh, Greenwood, um, where they, the residents tried another tack, and that's uh, the restrictive covenants and the, the conveyance from back in 1922, again, to use an open space and also not to build anything that might cause a nuisance. 
And suffice to say, we'll come across uh, nuisance a bit later on. But uh, the court last year decided that the restrictive covenants would be breached uh, by allowing the sort of development of Bath Rugby Club. Uh, I understand that's going to the Court of Appeal. So it's uh, from the year 2000, when the problem started, it's going to be at least 2022 before we know the final decision. It is like jaundice and jaundice in Bleak House. Literary reference there, Lizzie. Yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> okay, so shall we move on now to a case in relation to discharge of restrictive covenants? Um, and that is Shavram, Normandy and Basingstoke and Dean Borough Council from 2019. Yeah, I got a couple of questions about this, and so I ended up talking about it more than perhaps I, I intended to. But uh, I think it's a highly significant case, uh, not just its specifics, but you know, what's happening at the moment. It was about uh, Section 84 of the Law of Property Act, whereby you can go off to the tribunal system, the lands chamber, and discharge restrictive covenants on various grounds, not least of which they prevent reasonable use of the land and don't secure practical benefits. And uh, it, uh, this particular case, is, it's a good reminder, actually, that uh, it applies to some, not just freehold, but leasehold covenants specifically when you've got a lease of more than 40 years with more than 25 years unexpired, which was the case here. As the name suggests, uh, it all took place in the centre of Basingstoke, another place I know, and uh, some of the people listening will know, because I've done quite a lot of courses there, local government courses. And it was the former IBM offices uh, in the middle of Basingstoke. They were granted a lease in 1984, 150-year lease, and they got user covenants to use for business purposes uh, and not for residential, for offices, basically. It was uh, empty for some time, uh, but in 2015, uh, Chavram Normandy took an assignment, uh, assignment of the lease uh, and wanted to convert it into residential units and sublet on assured shorthold tenancies. Um, they, in England, uh, not Wales, but in England currently, more of this shortly, with a lot of provisos like prior approval from the council, you can convert uh, um, offices into residential units without planning permission. Um, and that's what they wanted to do, but that doesn't ride roughshod over any restrictive covenants. And so they needed to get the covenants discharged and the council refused. So there were no planning issues, but the council refused to discharge the covenants. I mean, eventually, uh, the council was basically arguing that this is the thin end of the wedge. If we allow uh, these offices to be converted into residential units, all the other offices will get converted into residential. The court decided, or the tribunal decided, uh, and I can vouch for this, that there's more than enough office space in, in Basingstoke. And uh, so that wasn't uh, necessarily a good argument, this thin end of the wedge. And they also held as a matter of fact, and I'd leave this to the valuers, that you might be getting less rental from tenants if you, if you sublet on short old tenancies, but the capital value will increase. So it was held that the covenant should be discharged. Thank you, Richard. Can you foresee any problems in the future? Well, there's a couple of things. And again, this is uh, questions that were raised during the, the webinar. 
Uh, firstly, soon after Shabram Normandy, which was from the summer of 2019, we had a, a Supreme Court case, as I was discussing, secret nominees in Hartford, uh, which basically was about consents to having been in a landlord to give consent not to be unreasonably withheld before you made a planning application. And secret nominees, uh, the Supreme Court by a majority said that uh, the landlord can take into account their own interests unless the tenant's interests far outweigh the landlord's. Uh, and they also said that uh, you should look at the circumstances uh, at the beginning, if you like, when the, the covenants were created rather than at the end. And they also said that they would apply equally to alienation user alteration covenants. So whether that's a bit of a game changer is another matter. I doubt it, but the bigger problem, I think, or the bigger issue is in England, again, not Wales, uh, the changes that are going ahead with uh, user covenants and uh, use classes in terms of planning. Um, because uh, last year we had, well, the transitional provisions are still going on, but we had a A1, which is retail, A2 use, which is professional services and financial services, and A3 restaurants and cafes and class B uh, business premises all subsumed in one big class E. Uh, and as of uh, August the 1st in England, we're going to have a new class MA, which stands for mercantile abode, whereby that new class E can be converted into C3 dwellings, subject to prior approval from the council, but no planning permission. And landlords, if they want to prevent a certain type of use, who knows what's around the corner in the use classes, but if you don't want your properties to be used for residential purposes, then uh, or you want to keep them as retail or you want to keep them as financial services, uh, or likewise in relation to freeholds, uh, restrictive covenants, I think you've got to think carefully about the use classes being changed and introduce restrictive covenants against what you can and can use the, cannot use the premises for. But bear in mind in the longer leases and also in the freeholds, those restrictive covenants are subject to uh, questioning in the Section 84 of the Law of Property Act. But I think solicitors, when they're drafting leases, have to think very, very carefully about the restrictive covenants you know, and what you allow and what you don't allow or what you don't allow subject to consent. And don't just refer to the use class, you know, don't just say class A1, because you might just find that's redundant in the future. OK, thank you. That's really helpful. There's another kind of related area we wanted to move on to, and the nuisance and annoyance covenants. You mentioned Bath, Rugby and Greenwood already. I don't know if there's more you want to say on that one. Yeah, I'll, I'll come back if I can to that one, Lizzie. But um, I'll start off. I mean, basically, you see all the time uh, nuisance and annoyance covenants you know, sort of residential developments for years and years. The Bath and, and Greenwood, if you remember, it was a covenant created in 1922. And I know in the, certainly in the private sector, residential conveyances, you know, 90% of the developments since the 60s have got these covenants, right? Dubai's have these covenants in them all over the place. And a lot of people just let them pass by, you know, what on earth does that mean? And it appears it means much more than you might imagine. I did also mention the case called Davis and Dennis, and I'll give you the facts of that, if that's OK. Yes, please do. It, uh, it took place in Berkshire. It was a place called Heron Island, which is in Caversham on the River Thames. Caversham occasionally is in the River Thames, actually. 
it's it's an island, uh, but it's got vehicle access and the likes, and it's a bit like a promontory uh, sticking into the River Thames near Reading, on the edge of Reading. Um, and uh, they, back in the 80s, I think the buildings were completed in uh, 1987, there were 47 houses built on this Heron Island. Um, and there's got open space and the likes as well. And all these 40, there were three-story houses, you know, sort of, I suspect quite expensive properties with views of the river. And they, they set up a management company, as you would do on these kind of things. It was managed by uh, Peveril, as they were, um, first port nowadays. And there were things like consent to plans, alterations, covenants that uh, you had to, if you're going to do any work on the premises, you got to get the management company's consent. But there's also covenants not to commit a nuisance or annoyance. Again, you know, this was from 2009 and people just let these things pass them by. Somebody got planning permission to build a three-story extension, can you know, basically extend their building up to, up to the full three stories. And neighbours objected to the fact because it would partially block their views of the river. And so they went off to court and eventually in the Court of Appeal, the Court of Appeal accepted that seems to have been a question mark over whether consent of the managing agents had been obtained or not, but they said that would be irrelevant. Uh, and they got an injunction because there was a nuisance and annoyance. They said the building work alone could constitute a nuisance, but blocking your views of the river uh, was an annoyance and it was actionable. And that was a real game changer and people didn't really pick up on it at the time. But anyway, what's uh, that's uh, Davis and Dennis. So how does that affect the long-standing rule that there's no easement to a view? Well, there still isn't an easement to a view. I mean, it's, it's one of the two oldest cases I ever mentioned. Uh, and that's the case in William Aldred's case from 1610. And it's still good law to this day because uh, easements have got to be sufficiently definite and a view can't be defined, if you like. You can have a right to light through windows and they're very, very common, but uh, not a general view. Um, the answer, I suppose, is that you can't have an easement to a view, but if you've got a nuisance or annoyance covenant, the restrictive covenant does the same thing. And again, that's a game changer because 90% of estate developments in this last 40 odd years have that uh, thing. And as I mentioned previously, uh, council had looks like to buys have a view, a rights to a view. And you might be entitled to an injunction or potential damages. So are there any subsequent issues or cases? Yeah, uh, there's been several, actually, and you know, several discussions that have, to my knowledge, not actually reached the, the stage of going to court. There was a case mentioned in the notes, I didn't actually mention it myself, called uh, Coventry School Foundation and White House. It was briefly mentioned as an aside because... Uh, you've got to show that you've got uh, land that's benefited before you can enforce a restrictive covenant. The High Court in that case said that you could look at extrinsic evidence, not just at the, you know, the conveyance the likes to decide what was the benefited land. And that was confirmed, although the Court of Appeal decided there wasn't any evidence of benefited land. In 2013, the Court of Appeal uh, also dealt with uh, the nuisance and annoyance side of things. The, the Coventry School Foundation had a couple of junior schools that they wanted to close down and uh, bought a site where they were going to build a bigger junior school, you know, subsuming the two of them. Uh, and there were restrictive covenants on the land, 1930s covenants against a nuisance or annoyance again. 
Uh, and some of the local residents didn't want this school and argued that uh, there'd be a nuisance or annoyance to the highway because, you know, during the school run and the like, she'll have uh, you know, people parking all over the place, you know, the kind of thing and lots of traffic and the likes. And all these properties, I say it was held eventually that they, they couldn't show what the benefited land was. This was a big 1930s estate. Um, but the Court of Appeal, uh, unlike the High Court, said that uh, that wouldn't constitute a nuisance or annoyance. It wasn't actionable to be used in the highway, the public highway, you know, for the purpose of school run. They basically said it's, uh, I've seen it in landlord and tenant cases as well, but, you know, if you're in a town or a big city or whatever, you've got to give and take, and just accept those things. So that wouldn't be a nuisance or annoyance. Um, the case, the Bath Rugby and Greenwood uh, case, which I sort of mentioned in the context of the wreck uh, in Bath, uh, the case from late last year, they were arguing that uh, if you develop this site, they were originally intending to have a leisure centre and hotels and the likes in North Parade and Bath's got more than enough of that kind of stuff uh, already. Uh, but that would constitute a nuisance or annoyance because the covenant said that you shouldn't build to the extent, uh, this 1922 covenant, so you shouldn't build to the extent that uh, there's a nuisance or annoyance. Um, so that was one of the reasons. We'll have to see what the Court of Appeals said, but that was one of the reasons that that case, uh, you know, again, the restrictive covenant side, the court decided in favour of the, uh, the residents. The other thing, perhaps, uh, I should mention, I mentioned a case called Braintree, uh, ex-party halls from the year 2000 about council house right to buy and how you can't charge for discharging covenants, uh, uh, development covenants like single private dwelling, consent to plans, alterations. But in halls, they specifically said that it wouldn't apply. You know, you can enforce estate management, if you like, covenants like nuisance or annoyance, you know, not to commit a nuisance or annoyance because that's about managing the estate and they are, they are valid. And even if you can't stop the building work, if you like, uh, under a single private dwelling covenant, if it's a former right to buy, I think the consensus is, and there have been not cases, but certainly lots of examples of it, you could sue in damages for a nuisance or annoyance. Individuals could sue in damages, potentially the, the local authority based on lost value of the land and the likes. So the Bath Rugby and Greenwood covenant you mentioned was from 1922. Are there any issues surrounding these older covenants? Yeah, they can be very difficult to find out about. It's, um, and a lot of people just ignore the older covenants. The um, Law of Property Act of 1925 came into to force in January the 1st, 1926. And it's the provision that says, section 78 is the provision. It says that the, uh, benefits uh, of restrictive covenants is deemed to pass to successors. You know, you don't have to state it. It's uh, it's sort of statutorily implied. And if you don't like that, there are cases which sort of fudge it a bit. But uh, you should make clear that the covenants are personal, but it only applies to covenants from 1926 onwards. It's uh, not applicable to 19, pre-1926 covenants. Um, and you often find that they're not on on showing up on the register or you have some they'll be on registers on first registration uh, but it'll have something to the extent you know no details provided and they did accept in Bath Rugby that uh, you could again introduce lots of extrinsic evidence as to because they referred to the you know, 
the Bathwick estate, which is a huge area, as I mentioned, it referred to you know, the, the people at the neighboring premises had the benefit and the, the adjoining owners had the benefit. But they accepted that uh, with a bit of research, you could find out who were the beneficiaries of the covenant. And so they had a cause of action. And you can't assume that uh, older covenants are not resurrected. The suggestion amongst some, if, it was, you know, if it's a development site, and you, you, know, you might just check in libraries and public records and this kind of stuff. If it's something a little less than that, it's, it's probably an insurance policy, just in case. Yeah. So there are a lot of issues. It'll be interesting to see if it does, you know, if and when it goes to the Court of Appeal, what they have to say about it, because it could be a highly significant case. Okay, thank you. That was really interesting. I think we've um, we've covered quite a lot there. You've been listening to Unpacking the Case, a podcast by David Jones-Bold, the Real Estate Law Specialists. We'll see you again in our next episode.